seen pictures, we've seen videos, Father, of the total um, destruction, Father, in, in Puerto Rico, and, and Father, the damage done in Mexico City. And, Father, we know that there are many lives have been lost, many have been hurt, and beyond that, Father, many have lost everything that they have. And we ask, Father, that in the midst of all of this, Father, that you would enable, by your grace, Father, people to come alongside. We pray, Father, for the governments, Father, of the United States and of Mexico, Father, to be able to come alongside the, the agencies that are involved also. Now, Father, that the people will be able to connect. Father, I think of, of all those who, who can't connect because of cell phones. And we ask, Father, in a very practical way, Father, that you would enable the cell phone towers, temp temporary towers to be uh, established and put up so people can connect. We pray, Father, for those who maybe have diabetes and who need power to, to go through the whole process of, of that, that you would enable them. Father, provide all the needs that they have. Encourage them. And Father, for those here, Lord, who are waiting day by day, we ask, Father, for your grace and that you would come alongside and encourage and strengthen them. We pray this in Jesus' name. And then, Father, we look toward your word today, Father, as we look at Colossians, first chapter, verses 15 through 23, and we ask, Father, that your spirit would be working, Father, in me first. Lord, that you might use me to speak clearly your word. Enable me, Father, by your grace. And Father, for each of our parts, Lord, that we would hear your word. And Father, that your word will make a difference in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we continue our series we started up in Colossians. Today we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I call your attention if you've got a bulletin. I had uh, Santia write down three questions that I want you to think about now. And, and just write down something quickly. When you picture God, what do you think of? When you picture God, what do you think of? Second question. When you picture Jesus, what do you think of? And thirdly, when God pictures you, what does he think of? Be thinking about those. Well, last month, a bishop in the United Methodist Church, Dr. Karen Oliveto, warned her audience to not make an idol out of Jesus Christ, saying that he was a bigot with prejudices. She continued, like you and me. He didn't have his life together. He was growing and maturing and putting pieces together as to who he was and what he should be doing. We might think of Jesus as the Rock of Ages, but he's more like a hunk of clay, forming and reforming himself into a relationship with God. Well, this bishop's view of Jesus is really unbiblical. For one thing, Christ did not have all knowledge. 
Secondly, he was faulty morally. He was a bigot. He was prejudiced in her eyes. Jesus, according to her, is not sinless. Jesus, according to her, really misses the mark. When we begin thinking about God and about Jesus, our culture can so impact whom we see or how we see who God is and who Christ is. How did you answer that first question? What, what do you picture when you think about God? I know that's a difficult question. Look at verse 15 that we read earlier, and we see why it's hard. He, being Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's invisible. It's hard to picture someone who's invisible. In the Bible, of course, seeing God is connected with the idea of knowing God. To see him is to know him and to be known by him. So why is he unknown to us? The problem is entirely on us. We're going to look later on at verse 21, but verse 21 tells us that we just don't naturally want to know God. It says that we were once alienated, hostile in our minds, enemies, if you will, doing evil deeds. You see, the problem's not with God. The problem is entirely on us. We're not serious about pursuing God. John 6, 44, as a matter of fact, says that, and this is Christ speaking, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Romans 1, 18, talking about mankind, humans, says that we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The verse 15 tells us what we ought to picture when we think about God. The answer, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Today, as we look at our passage, we see in Christ who God is, creator and redeemer, what God is like, a God of mercy and love, and what God does. He sends his son to rescue from dominion of darkness through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You talk to everyone today, anyone, everybody pretty much has an opinion about God. They don't think that they need to be an expert or have studied. They'll quickly tell you their views on God. In overall, most will acknowledge that there is a God. Maybe not the God of Jesus Christ, the God of Christianity, but most will say that there is a God. But Jesus, they're not too sure about. Maybe he's the son of God. Maybe he's not. I looked at some of the most recent Barna and Harris polls and 89% of Americans believe there is a God. Again, maybe not a Christian God, but they believe there's a God. And around 60% would say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is in, in the United States. I remember after 9-11, if you remember, go back to the initial 9-11 and they, they had these various uh, commemorative services, memorial services, and Franklin Graham spoke at a memorial and he used Jesus Christ's name two or three times. I think he prayed in Jesus Christ's name. And I remember 
almost feeling a shock afterwards that people were criticizing him tremendously. Some were calling him disgusting. They were saying that Franklin Graham wanted to divide America because he prayed in Jesus' name. You see, there are people who don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God. But it's interesting when we look and have this high percentage who say they know or believe there is a God, and a lower percentage say they don't believe in Jesus, or a, 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 lot, a small percentage do believe. But verse 15 kind of flips this whole thing around. Verse 15 says that God is unknowable and invisible apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is a known entity. The Father is invisible and unknown to us unless Jesus reveals him. So today, if you're talking, interacting with some unsaved friends and they say, Oh, I believe in God. Ask them, which God? Which God do you believe in? Describe him. It's likely that if they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, their perspective of who God is is very different. And I think so often our culture sees God as, if they believe that he is, is present, that he is a God that's distant, a God who may be all-powerful, but he doesn't care. He doesn't know anything about us or want to know anything about us. Which God do you believe in? Which God do you believe in? When we see Jesus in the Bible, we see him laughing, we see him crying, we see him celebrating, we see him eating and drinking and loving and stooping and suffering and bleeding and dying. When we see Jesus, we see something completely different from what the world sees, this distant powerful being that somehow doesn't care and our job is to go to these people around us and say forget that uncaring distant God forget everything you know about this God that you know and look to Jesus look at Jesus and let him be the image of that invisible God And what will you tell them? What will I tell them as we talk about who Jesus Christ is? Today our passage is such a powerful picture of who Jesus Christ is. When you picture Jesus, this is what we have. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything that he might be preeminent. For in him all things, I'm sorry, for him in all fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. Who is Jesus? Well, first, as we've said earlier, he's the image of the invisible God. Christ says, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. Jesus isn't a replica of God. He wasn't created by God. He is God. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Catch those words. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The NIV says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself, God. It's Jesus who makes known to us God. Jesus brings clarity in our hazy perspectives and views of who God is. So first, Christ is the invisible, is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn here doesn't mean that he was created first. It's, the word actually carries with it the idea of, of first in position, first in importance over all things. Jesus is first in rank of honor. In Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking of Christ, says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. So you see that preeminence, that place of honor, Christ being higher than all the other kings. The people of Israel, if you think back to the Old Testament, they were often, since they often, sometimes, they were called the firstborn to indicate their high position as God's as recipients of God's love. So when Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of creation, he meant that the highest honor belongs to him. Christ is supreme over creation. There's never a time that Jesus Christ didn't exist along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. John 1 is so very clear. First three verses there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see Christ is the invisible image, or rather is the image of the invisible God. And secondly, firstborn of the creation, place of position and honor. And third, we see in verse 16, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, for the thrones, dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Was this the picture that you thought of when you thought of Christ? When you wrote down something, did you think Christ the Creator. Christ is creator of all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. That word, those words there, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, refer to invisible rulers, both good and evil. If you 
we'll go back to Daniel chapter 10 and we all know the story Daniel was praying he'd been praying for many many days and finally an angel came and he says I've come to answer your prayer but for 21 days the prince of Persia has blocked me and Michael the archangel came to help me we live in the midst of a spiritual world and some are powerful many are powerful but Christ is supreme Christ rules over all he has the majesty and the power over all things he is supreme authority over all not only is Jesus Christ the creator of all things he is the end or he is the goal all things were created through him for him for him Romans 11 36 says for from him and through him and to him are all things one more time for from him and through him and to him are all things finally fourth this section here Jesus sustains all things not only did he create things but verse 17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together Christ holds all things together one theologian said that he Christ keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos maybe that is even is a little bit too little the verb hold together can imply that their very existence depends on him Hebrews 1 3 says that Christ sustains everything by the mighty command or mighty words of his and since Christ is creator and since Christ is the sustainer of our lives and holds all things together he knows how to fix you and me and to care for our problems years ago a corporation in South America purchased a very fine uh, printing press once they got it shipped and got it down there to put it together and then those of you who know anything about equipment and machines sometimes you can put them together but they don't work and that's what happened here and so there in, the, in, in, in this South American country they, they pulled together the best people they still can get to run and so they called the company and said basically urgently we need you to send someone now the US firm realizing that urgent need decided to send the man who created who designed the press and when he arrived on the scene the officials there in the in South America were skeptical and the young man the very young man was obviously wet behind the ears He surely couldn't take care of it so after some discussion they decided to call the company back in in US and say send someone else send someone else he's too young we need an experienced person and the reply came he made the machine he can fix it he made the machine he can fix it Christ created us he made us he sustains us as we go through life we need to look to him 
and to realize that he can solve all our personal problems. He knows how to solve them because he is the creator of all of each of us. Well, not only was Jesus Christ creator of all things, he's the reason for creation. Everything exists for Christ, to bring him glory. And we know again, again that he sustains all things. But the universe is not sufficient like most people think here on earth. And neither are we as individuals. There are those who oppose directly or those who would like knowledge that Christ reigns. But we know that one day that every knee will bow and every knee, uh, every tongue uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, Christ again brings clarity to those fuzzy, hazy notions of whom we see God. In this first section, we look, we've seen Christ. We've seen this all-powerful God who is the exact image of the invisible God. We see Christ as the preeminent one, the supreme over all. We've seen God as the creator and the one who sustains all things. Beginning in verse 18, we see a different side of Christ. We see a God of love and mercy. The first part of the passage, we see Jesus Christ declared as creator God. In the second part, we'll see that he, he is declared our Savior and our Redeemer and our Recreator. First, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Paul writes in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. We, the church, exists because Christ died for our sins. Our purpose is to bring glory to him. Of course, sin has affected that, hasn't it? Sin has affected the whole creation. It's broken, infected. Defective because of sin. Christ is creator, but he's also that agent of new creation. The redeemed, the body of Christ, the church. The event which marked this new creation is Christ's resurrection. In verse 18, Paul writes, Christ was the firstborn from the dead. That in everything that he might be preeminent. And this, of course, is reference to the resurrection of Christ. His new creation, the body of Christ, will also rise from the grave. One day, we, the body of Christ, will rise from the grave. First, Christ is the head of the church. Second, Christ is the firstborn among the dead. Christ came to earth as fully man and fully God. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He conquered sin and death when he rose from the grave he's supreme Christ's resurrection is the source of life for all of us John 14 9 says because Christ is speaking because I live you also will live verse 19 says for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell we see first Christ is the head of the church Second, Christ is the firstborn among the dead. And third, we see in Christ, 
the fullness of God. What? And this expresses the entirety or completeness. Colossians 2.9 says that for him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, what does the fullness of God look like? Our culture tends to think of a distant God who is all-powerful but not caring. But Jesus is what the fullness of God looks like. Especially Jesus if he dies on the cross for us. Verse 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things. Well, just think, here he is, the creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things. How does he reconcile creation? Does he have this special effects battle from the heavens? Or does he come to earth and crush everything? No. No to both of them. No, he makes peace through his shed blood on the cross. Fourth, Jesus Christ reconciled all things to him. Verses 21, 22. You, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil things, evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Imagine, imagine if you were Jesus, okay, and you made heaven and earth, all things, heaven and earth, and visible, invisible. Everything is held together by you. Imagine if your creatures the ones that you created out of a deep love hated you. They went to war against you, committed evil against you, and those things that you love. What would you do? What would I do? Probably would wipe them out. Probably. But what did he do? He made peace through the shed blood on the cross. Someone wrote, he descends into the war. He meets, he met with hatred and contempt, but he never retaliated. The world rejects him and mocks him and he takes it. Never retaliates. His back is pulverized by flogging. The soldiers humiliate him, hit him, spit on him, and he's silent. Eight-inch spikes were driven through each wrist and one through his feet. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. The cross crucifies all those imaginary images that we have of God. All those images that we might dream up. You see, Christ is the real thing. He is the image of the invisible God. He's nothing that we ever imagined. The fullness of God could look like so much. It could look like overwhelming power because He is supreme. He's all-powerful. But He also could look like a Savior, Jesus Christ, stripped, struggling for breath on the cross, 
because of his deep love for us. That is the fullness of God. Jesus Christ crucified for you and for me. It's easy, isn't it, for us to focus on the what of the cross? Christ died on the cross for us to pay for our sins. But here Paul looks at the who on the cross. Who was this person pinned to wood? The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The creator of the universe. The sustainer of all things. The redeemer. The reconciler. In whom all fullness of God dwells. That is the God that we love. That is the God who won our hearts. What picture do you have when you think of God? I think verse 15 commands us to stop thinking of this, this heavenly God that our culture gives us who is distant, who doesn't care, who isn't aware of our needs, we need to repent when we begin thinking that way and look to the cross and realize that our God was slaughtered for us because of his deep love for us. Well, how did you answer that question up front, that final one? When God sees you, when God pictures you, what does he think of you? What does he think? What does he see? I think we can see over and over that we have wrong views of who God is or who Christ is. We tend to think that sometimes we know in our head that God is all-powerful and we know that he, he knows our needs, but I think sometimes we think he's so busy, does he really know my needs? You see... This powerful God who is the creator and the sustainer, this real God, Jesus Christ, reveals that he does care. And we see though in verse 21, as I read earlier, before Christ we were alienated from God. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. And these three terms describe us before Christ. And they're not nice words, are they? They're not pretty pictures. Alienated from God. Enemies in our mind. Evil behavior. That's us. On April 15, 1912, most of us know the story of the Titanic and how it sunk in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. That night revealed a lot about human behavior. It revealed a lot of selfishness and cowardice. When the Titanic had finally sunk down for 18 lifeboats to spread across the icy waters among the crying, drowning swimmers, the story was almost devoted to self-serving cowardice. There were 1,600 people who were not able to get on a lifeboat only 13 were picked up 
by the 18 half-empty lifeboats that hovered close by. In boat number five, when Officer Pittman heard the anguished cries all around him, he turned to the, um, his boat around and shouted, Now men, we must pull back to the wreck. The passengers protested, Why should we lose our lives? In a useless attempt to save these people, Pittman gave in. And so for the next hour, number five and its 40 passengers with capacity for 65, heaved gently on the Atlantic Ocean while 40 listened to the fading cries of swimmers 300 yards away. Same story told over and over in different boats. Number two, Officer Boxhall asked the ladies on board, shall we go back? They said no. So number two, 60% full, likewise drifted while her people callously listened to the cries for help. On boat number six, the situation was reversed. The ladies and women begged the quartermaster Hitchens to return, but he refused, painting a vivid picture of how a drowning man could overturn the boat. But the women pleaded as the cries grew stronger and stronger. Of the 18 boats, only one, number 14, returned to help. And this was an hour after Titanic had sunk. Then the threshing cloud had thinned out. The sinking of the Titanic is a picture of our fallen sinful world. It's a picture of humanity adrift on the sea, alienated from each other and from God, unable to help each other. You see so clearly the estrangement, the separation between mankind. And it's toward this profound need that Paul has been moving us. In verse 22 we read, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free of accusation. What is God's picture when He thinks of you? What is your answer? Holy in God's sight, without blemish, free effort of accusation, if you're in Christ Jesus. How does that compare with how you pictured yourself, or how God pictures you? It's God's word against yours. Remember verses 13 and 14 last week? For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. You and I as believers in Christ Jesus have been deposited into the kingdom of the Son, of Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are loved by the Father for the same love that He loves His Son. And when He thinks of you, He pictures you as holy, without blemish, free of acquisition. In Christ, 
we're at peace with God, the God of the universe. Verse 23 kind of pulls off a loop on us, so to speak. 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In English, the word if makes it sound like that mm, maybe you can lose your salvation. If. If you continue. <laughs> He's not saying, you're good with God now, but I don't know about tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. Theologian and writer N.T. Wright writes, Paul knows that the true Christian faith is the beginning of a life which, given by God, will be brought to completion. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, he, I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began the good work in you will complete it the day of Jesus Christ. You see, I don't think that when we look at the context and all scripture, the word translated if could easily be translated since. <laughs> you can say since. You are continuing in your faith, having been established and made firm. Paul knows that genuine faith is seen in that patient and steadfast day-to-day -day living. While counterfeit faith or false faith is sometimes hard to, to differentiate in the early stages from the real thing, it eventually dies. The true faith continues on. From God's point of view, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. Paul is directing the Colossians to keep on looking, keep on looking to that same gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that declares us irreversibly and immovably holy because of Jesus. That invisible image, the creator, the sustainer, the savior and redeemer, the reconciler of the universe. This is Christ's world, made for Christ, sustained by him, reconciled by him, proclaiming Christ in every detail. My question for me and for you. Is this my vision of Jesus? Is this a picture that you thought of when you thought of Christ? Is Jesus that big? Is he that big? And is my vision of God this Christ-like? So much more. May we know the God of the universe the creator, sustainer, redeemer, reconciler is a God who cares. He's not that distant God. In the midst of crises, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hurt, sometimes we're tempted to say, does God care? Does he know? Does he know what I'm going through? 
And can you help me? I'm here to tell you this morning that our God, Jesus Christ, who is the invisible, who is picture image of the invisible God, who is the creator, sustainer, redeemer, went to the cross for us. He knows our needs. He can fix our problems just is the man who repaired that praying press could fix it. Christ is able to fix our problems. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of Jesus Christ today and of God. We thank you, Father, that your word is alive and active and is true. And Father, we thank you that you're not a God who is far off and just found that you don't care.